Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. That's the purpose of this podcast. We spend most of our time talking about how to do ministry and meeting some of the practical challenges that come our way. Now, I think I struck a chord these past two weeks on the podcast talking about breaking out of the Christian subculture and moving from attraction and engagement strategies to infiltration strategies related to evangelism. I think I struck a chord because of the amount of response I've gotten to the podcast. Lots of email and Facebook messages and others uh, giving me affirmation for the perspective, but also telling me your stories about how God has used you in this way or how God has motivated you to be more of an infiltrator, and that was really encouraging to me. You may have also remembered from the podcast a couple of weeks ago that I said uh, that, it was, that this uh, was a real burden for me going into 2019. You know, most of my life uh, I have been involved in sharing the gospel with people, and not just uh, randomly doing that, but very intentionally having uh, a strategy which included a location or a place or a group of people that I was really investing my life in building relationships and communicating the gospel. Uh, For about 10 years, I did that in the San Francisco Bay Area by being the chaplain for the San Francisco Giants. And that gave me a tremendous opportunity to be uh, in a secular setting, making friends with men and uh, and their their wives, uh, and relating the gospel to them in a very... Uh, in a very secular setting, but yet doing so in such a way that people came to faith in Christ, disciples were made, and uh, we saw real, really positive results. You know, when I moved the seminary to Southern California, one of the real personal losses for me in that process was giving up the Giants. Uh, and it, it was really hard. Not only was it hard because of my 10-year emotional investment in the relationships, but it was also hard because I knew I was giving up uh, my real my my uh, my focused effort of evangelism and discipleship in that community. So when I moved to Southern California, uh, as I said on the podcast two weeks ago, I've I've floundered a bit. Uh, I've I've tried to engage here or there, and I've sort I've certainly been involved with my church, but I just haven't yet found that community uh, where I could really put myself and and really uh, invest myself in the context of trying to get the gospel into a secular setting. Well, when I moved here, I, I thought perhaps baseball was in my rearview mirror and that I needed to move on to other areas of life and other challenges of life. But the hard reality is I have, for whatever reason, and there's a lot of them I could go into at another time, but I have, for a number of reasons, always had uh, a, a real relationship in the baseball community. I, I don't know why in some ways, but uh, I have a remarkable way of just interfacing with and connecting with players, coaches, etc., uh, I guess it's because I, I, I not only grew up playing baseball, but I've just sort of immersed myself in understanding that culture for so long that it's second nature to me. Well, I thought all that was behind me. So I came to Southern California. I've been looking for a couple of years for an opportunity. And uh, then at the beginning of December, I made it a focus matter of prayer. I went back and reviewed the material about uh, breaking out of the Christian subculture from uh, my previous writings and messages, and then I put the two podcasts together and I shared them with you. And all of that was really a a personal uh, part uh, or a personal act of motivation, if you will, uh, really trying to focus me as I moved into 2019. And part of that was praying and asking, God, uh, please help me, open a door of opportunity for me that I can engage in a specific way a community of people who need the gospel in 2019. Two days after I prayed that prayer, 
and concluded those podcasts. Two days. I received an email from my former boss at Baseball Chapel asking me if I would like to become the chaplain of a minor league baseball team in our area. I stared at that screen and just thought, God, you are too good. You're answering my prayer. Uh, You're giving me a place that I uh, will feel really comfortable in ministering. You're giving me a new opportunity that I couldn't have have made up or created. You, You just had to give it to me. And sitting there looking at my screen, I had this profound sense of just how good God is to hear and answer our prayers, especially when we pray prayers about the core of his mission, which is getting the gospel to lost people in our world. So I uh, went through a process uh, of uh, you know, filling out the paperwork and getting approved and all of that, but I uh, was appointed just a day or two ago as the new chaplain for a minor league baseball team uh, just about 20 minutes from my house. So it is going to be a great year of getting acquainted with that organization, meeting the people, involving myself in the lives of the players, and really doing a focused job of infiltrating with the gospel. Now, it's uh, interesting about that because uh, these are going to be very young players. Uh, This is a minor league team at a fairly low level in the minor league system, which means these players will be 18, 19, 20 years old. Now, having been experienced in baseball chapel for many years, I I know there's a pattern, and that is that in the major leagues, while there are a few people who come to faith in Christ, the major leagues is really more focused on, the major league chaplaincy role is really more focused on pastoral care and discipleship strategies for believers. Because very few people, as you know, come to Christ as they get older and older, the the, the percentages diminish. And so uh, the minor leagues, however, in baseball chapel are a place where evangelism is much more effective and much more important because you're dealing with much younger players, uh, most of whom will never make the big leagues. And they face the hard reality when they get to the minor leagues that suddenly uh, they're not the best player on their team anymore like they have been since they were in Little League. And now they're competing for what may be only one or two places of promotion that will advance them on toward the next level of baseball. So it's a really high-pressure, difficult uh, time when guys are faced with a lot of life change and a lot of life challenge. And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity of stepping into that role uh, and sharing the gospel and being able to uh, uh, once again assume my role as a baseball chaplain. You know, I... uh, I just can't seem to get away from the baseball community. I I was a coach, of course, for years with my kids, and then when that was over, I continued on umpiring, and I actually umpired for 25 years. And uh, there is some question in my mind about whether I should go back to that as well as another way of investing in my local community, but haven't made that choice yet. But I certainly am willing to go back into this chaplaincy role, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So. Uh, once again, I want you to know that I'm just uh, I'm more than a theoretician. I'm not just a person in a suit uh, pontificating about what other Christians ought to be doing. Uh, I really am a person that wants to be engaged in frontline evangelism and frontline discipleship, particularly of young men, and I'm delighted that I have the opportunity to do that in a fresh way going forward. Now, having this recent experience has motivated me again to think about why is it that I really enjoy working so much with young athletes? Uh, of course, I enjoy baseball players because I particularly relate to them and their understanding of life and how they see the game and how the game affects their life and all of that. But broader, uh, what is it about athletes that, that's, that's so in, uh, intriguing for me and so enjoyable for me? 
Well, there's, uh, I suppose, lots of answers to that, but I'll just focus on one today, and that is I like working with athletes because uh, they are highly competitive people who face uh, real dilemmas about the level of competition in their lives and what that means in terms of relationships, performance, and accomplishment, and, frankly, what that means about their own self-worth and about how they view themselves as a person uh, and, all, and, and if I'm successful in my witness, how they view themselves as a person in relationship with God. When I'm talking to uh, athletes who are not Christians, one of the questions they sometimes ask me is, if I commit my life to God, where will the drive come from to compete at the highest level? In other words, doesn't Christianity teach me to love everyone, so won't following Jesus make me soft? And so working through this conundrum that these uh, uh, young non-Christian athletes have about the uh, importance of competition in their lives and how they've been defined by performance all of their lives and how if they come to faith in Christ and uh, adopt a new worldview and a new ethic of relationship, won't that undermine their capacity to be successful in their careers? Well, the same kind of questions could be asked by driven young executives or by driven young business owners or by anyone who's driven with a highly competitive bent uh, toward success or toward accomplishment as a means of validation. So I've spent a good bit of time writing and thinking about what I call the case for competition. And so I want to share that with you this morning on the, on the podcast. And I do it for two reasons. One, some of you are highly competitive people. Uh, you're trying to get ahead. You're trying to get ahead in your career. You're trying to get ahead in your family. You're trying to get ahead in your ministry. You're trying to get ahead in your finances. And I don't think there's anything wrong with healthy competition or a healthy drive to compete to get better. Uh, it can become problematic when it defines who you are, begins to be your source of validation, but we're going to talk about that more in just a moment, how to keep that from happening. But m many of you are not only uh, highly competitive in your personal lives, but you work with very competitive people. Uh, in your pastoral role or in your ministry leadership role, perhaps you work with athletes, and I don't mean professional athletes, I mean you work with high school athletes or college athletes, but you work with people who are in competitive environments, or you work with people who are in a business environment or a corporate environment or, a, or an educational environment where people are striving to get ahead, where they're moving forward and competing for position. And so, how do you help people like that understand uh, an appropriate perspective on competition uh, how do you understand the case for competition from a Christian worldview perspective? Well, here are four ideas that I've developed over time that I think are very helpful. Number one, uh, Christians compete because we understand the true nature of competition. We understand that competition isn't about destroying or even defeating other people. That true competition is an internal challenge. It's competing not to crush others, but to maximize our God-given potential within the abilities and the opportunity that we've been provided. Now, let me say that again. Competition is not about crushing others. Competition is about maximizing the God-given potential within the abilities and the opportunities that God has given each one of us. Now, I find this principle rooted in the parable of the talents. You'll find that in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. 
Now, the parable of the talents has many applications, and I'm just drawing a principle from it this morning uh, to help understand what it means to be competitive. But in the parable of the talents, you remember one person was given one talent, and one person was given two talents, and another person was given five talents. And the person who was given one talent buried his in the ground and, of course, was rebuked for doing so, even though he returned the talent. The person who had two talents turned that into four talents, and the person who had five talents turned his into ten talents. And this is what's significant. Both of them were equally affirmed. Now, in our world today, the, a world's, the world's perspective on competition is the winner was the one who had the five talents and turned it into ten. He's the winner. But in the biblical perspective, the one who had two and turned it into four and the one who had five and turned it into ten are both winners. They're both equally validated for what they accomplished. Now, why is this so? It's so because both of these persons maximized the opportunity they had with the ability they had in order to double what they had, what they had been given and achieve a significant rate of return. So Jesus' point in this parable is clear. Uh, the, the, what he's measuring is how we maximize abilities and opportunities, not if we get the most and crush everyone else around us or beat everyone else around us. Now, one of the applications of this in my life over the years has been a, a shifting from trying to compete with others to trying to compete with myself. Uh, and this took a significant expression for me in transitioning out of playing baseball and coaching baseball into umpiring baseball. Now, you may say, well, we you can understand how competition and a competitive drive can be expressed through playing and through coaching. But what does it look like when you're umpiring? Where's the competitive nature of that? Well, the competitive nature of umpiring is that you are trying to be the best umpire possible and fulfill the abilities and opportunities that you have. In other words, you're umpiring against the invisible standard, if you will, of excellence that you know can be achieved given the opportunities and the abilities that you have. And so when I walked onto every field, it wasn't a matter of did I umpire well enough to get a promotion to the next level or did I umpire well enough for the coaches to like me and invite me back or did I umpire well enough that the crowd applauded when I walked off the field. It was an internal measure. Did I umpire up to the standard of excellence that I know that I can achieve given the abilities and training and opportunities that I'd been given? And there were many times when I walked off the field and coaches would say, a good game, uh, our parents would say, hey, great job out there. Thanks for being here today. And I would simply nod and say thank you or you're welcome or in some way uh, acknowledge the compliment. But I knew that they did not really have an accurate appraisal of my performance that day because I knew the times I had been out of position or the times I had been uh, not sure of a call and had to make one based on limited information because of my bad uh, perspective on the play. Uh, they knew that I was unsure about a rule interpretation and that I made the best one I could, but I was going to have to go home and look it up in the real book to be sure I got it right. I, I knew that there were mistakes or shortcomings in my performance, but maybe even other people didn't see. So I wasn't competing to get their approval or competing to have other people say I did a good job. I was competing against, my, uh, against a standard that I know is in place because of the abilities and talents that I have. So you compete not to crush other people, but you compete to maximize the possibilities that you have yourself. And this means that true competition is also shown in the absolute effort expended in any situation. 
you know, sometimes when you give everything in an athletic contest or in a business setting or uh, in a school setting, when you give everything and still lose, the issue is not your failure to compete. The issue may be a lack of talent. <laughs> That's hard to hear, I know, but that just may be the case. Uh, I've seen athletes who sacrificed significant effort, gave everything they had, and left the field of play totally expended and lost. And you might say, well, they need to learn to compete. No, they, they competed just fine. They maximized their talent. They maximized their abilities. They maximized their opportunity. They gave everything they had. They expended ultimate effort. But, you know, honestly, they just didn't have the talent that was on the other side of the field. Uh, there's a saying in college football uh, it's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmy's and Joe's. In other words, it's not the planning or the play calling or the strategizing, it's the talent. And so sometimes you can compete by giving all you have to maximize the abilities and opportunities you have and still not win, still not be successful, but that doesn't mean you haven't competed. It just means you didn't have all the talent. It also means that it maybe wasn't your day or maybe it wasn't the time for you to have the success that may come at a different time. I think about four men that I know who are prominent uh, Christians in Major League Baseball. Uh, Jeremy Affeld has recently retired, but he was a relief pitcher and a very, very good one. Uh, outstanding Christian. Buster Posey is the current catcher for the San Francisco Giants, also a fine Christian. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez is a uh, player that was recently with the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think he's moving to a different team this offseason. But uh, Adrian, very, very committed Christian, very, very strong leader in the clubhouse with his Christian faith. And then Ted Barrett, who was last year's crew chief for the World Series and crew chief for the All-Star Game, uh, really an umpire at the top of the game. And he's also a very uh, open and strong Christian. So here's four guys. Jeremy Affelt pitching, Buster Posey catching, uh, Adrian Gonzalez batting, Ted Barrett umpiring. When Jeremy throws the pitch, somebody's not going to be happy. Uh, they're all four going to compete with everything they have. Jeremy's going to throw the best pitch he possibly can. Buster Posey's going to call the best pitch he thinks is needed in that situation and do all he can to frame it in the strike zone as he receives it. And Adrian Gonzalez is going to do everything he can to hit that pitch. And Ted Barrett's going to watch it closely and try to make a ruling of a ball or a strike. Or if he hits it, a foul or a fair everybody's going to do the very best they can, maximizing the moment. They're all competing. But only one person's going to be successful. And this came out in a funny way uh, with these guys once. Uh, Jeremy was pitching, and uh, Adrian Gonzalez was batting, and Jeremy threw the pitch, and Adrian hit it out of the ballpark for a home run. And after the game, uh, reporters stuck a microphone in Jeremy's face and said, uh, the pitch that uh, Gonzalez hit out of the park for a home run, uh, did you throw the wrong pitch? Did you throw it in the wrong location? What happened on that pitch? And Jeremy cocked his head to the side and looked at the reporter and said, you know, Adrian gets paid $18 million a year to hit that pitch. There was nothing wrong with the pitch. It was the right pitch in the right location. Sometimes the batter wins. And I thought, what a great perspective on competition. I gave everything I had, Jeremy's saying. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. But sometimes the talent on the other side uh, is better in the moment than the talent on my side. And that is a great perspective on the true nature of competition. You see, real competitors are satisfied when they've given all they have. When they've maximized their moment of opportunity with all the ability, talent, and training they have. Real competitors are satisfied that when they have done that, they have given it all, they have competed, and they have the quiet satisfaction of knowing that they were there in the moment as they were supposed to be, no matter the outcome. 
So Christians understand the true nature of competition. It's maximizing your talent, abilities, opportunity, giving everything you have, expending maximum effort in the moment, not always measuring the results by the final score. Another uh, aspect of competition that we understand is that Christians focus on what they can control. Now, athletes keep score. You know, they total up the points at the end of the game and they see who wins. Business leaders keep score. Uh, They look at the bottom line at the end of every month and at the end of every year and they know how they did. They keep score. In the educational world, we keep score. Uh, We know what kind of grades students make. We know how many graduates we have. We know how many people enrolled for, for, for classes every year. We keep score. Everybody in every competitive situation keeps score. But the challenge becomes when you measure your, the, the level of your competitive effectiveness by the score instead of by something else. In other words, it's important to measure what you can control. For example, in the sporting world, a, a perfect pitch can be hit out of the ballpark in the illustration I just gave, or a potential touchdown pass that uh, the quarterback threw perfectly uh, can be dropped. Um, An umpire's mistake or a judge's mistake can can ruin a perfect game or a perfect routine in gymnastics or a sport like that. Outcomes are often out of our control, but competitive effort is not outside our control. You know, one of the verses I use often with athletes is Proverbs 21.31. It says this, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. And what I tell athletes is this, uh, Saddle your horse, ride it into the ground, but only trust God for the victory in the battle. Now, that's what real competitors and Christian competitors understand. We can't control outcomes. We can only control effort. We can only control uh, how we show up and what we do. We can control focus, and we can control effort, and we can control uh, our, the, the energy we bring to the task, but we cannot always control outcomes. And so uh, when you spend too much time focusing on outcomes, uh, you, rec- you, you will be frustrated because you will constantly be measuring yourself by something you simply can't control. Okay, a third aspect of competition is this. Christians compete to please an audience of one. Now, athletes perform in front of people. Uh, Business leaders perform in front of people, their customers, their uh, stockholders. Uh, Education leaders perform in front of people. Uh, We perform in front of our constituents and our donors and our boards. Uh, Those of us in leadership in almost any area where there's competitive drive to accomplish something or to succeed at something, we perform in front of people. And it's easy to fall into the trap of trying to please people Uh, and to believe that if we can only do that, we will have accomplished our competitive goals. But honestly, that is not a good measure of competitive success. Uh, The crowds of people around us are fickle. A good example of the fickle nature of the crowd is in Acts chapter 14, verses 11 through 20. In that story, uh, some missionaries uh, performed a miracle, and the crowd acclaimed them as gods, uh, and then tried to offer animal sacrifices to them. But very shortly, at the end of that same story, the same mob stoned the missionaries, dragged them out of town, and left them for dead. I call this the doctrine of the crowd. The same people who love you in the morning will kill you in the evening. And this illustrates the the futility of trying to please the crowd as a measure of your competitive success. People may be chanting your name or claiming allegiance to you or vowing that they'll support you to the bitter end, And the next day, they'll be calling for you to be traded or calling for you to be fired or calling for you to be reprimanded for your failures. 
Listen, the Bible warns about giving too much credence to what people think. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says that while we have uh, some evaluators in the community and some evaluators in the church, and we should give some credibility and credence to both sources, the Bible says that it is the Lord who ultimately judges us. Our ultimate evaluator is God. We are, challenged, we are challenged in the Bible to give glory to God and bring glory to God in every circumstance. So playing for an audience of one is a spiritual discipline. Uh, it means you ask this question, what does the Lord think of my preparation, effort, and attitude? Now, again, building on these previous two statements that I've made, that uh, Christians understand the true nature of competition, which is maximizing your talent, ability, and opportunity, and we understand that true competition focuses on what we can control, which is um, attitude, uh, effort, uh, and uh, uh, preparation. So we understand that. Then, then pleasing an audience of one, this evaluation of our competitive nature and competitive drive and competitive success is simply asking that question. Have we fulfilled or have we uh, honored the Lord with our preparation, effort, and attitude? And if we've done that, then we have truly competed for an audience of one. But the final distinctive about Christians and our perspective on competition is this. Christians compete because we are trying to meet the needs of others. Now, stay with me here. Most athletes compete in a team context. Even a golfer has a caddy. I mean, almost all athletes compete in a team context. Now, this means that other people are depending on you. Because other people are depending on you, you must compete at the highest level. In other words, you must give the maximum preparation, effort, and attitude. You must do that in the context of controlling everything you can control. You must do that in the context of maximizing uh, your ability, your opportunity, uh, and, and the talents that you've been given. You must do that because you care about the people around you. In all levels of sports and life, People are depending on us. And so when we show up and give everything we have in the moment, we are actually doing so to honor, bless, and strengthen others. Jesus said, no greater love has this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. He added later, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then he also said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus wants us to show up every day, do our jobs with everything we had, and sacrifice ourselves to make others successful. It means we check our ego at the door and focus on helping other people achieve their goals. And no place is this more evident than in sports, where players have to subliminate or, or, uh, and sacrifice their own personal desires in order to accomplish the good of the group. You know, when you hear, see a team that's won a major championship, like the Golden State Warriors or the San Francisco Giants, uh, one of the things you'll hear them talk about is the chemistry they have as a team. Uh, what is chemistry? Well, as I've looked at it, chemistry is when a group of men or a group of women come together and decide we're going to do what the Bible says. Now, they don't put it in those terms. They don't even know the Bible in many cases, but they decide 
We're going to lay our lives down for each other. Uh, we're going to serve each other and show each other service by caring for one another. And we're going to demonstrate our greatness, not by our individual achievements, but by what we can do to serve each other. Therefore, raising the whole uh, 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 team as, as, as we go forward together to accomplish more than any one of us could accomplish individually. So this missing or this mysterious element in professional sports called chemistry really is real. And it's what is described in the Bible as laying your life down or sacrificing yourself to meet the needs of others, uh, putting their needs above your own, making the group goals better than, more important than individual goals. Now you say, well, how important is this? Well, I have the privilege of influencing uh, privately some, some, some significant leaders in, in the professional sports world. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I was able to sit down and spend an hour, hour and a half with a uh, a, a top executive of a of a major uh, a major sports franchise. That's all. That's all I'll say about it. Major sports franchise, and uh, he told me that he had uh, they had won championships, and he was recognized in his field as a person who uh, knows a lot about winning and winning championships. And so he told me that a team from another professional sports league had contacted him and asked him to come and meet with their coaching staff and spend an hour to an hour and a half with him talking about creating a culture of winning and how you create and sustain that over time. Now, my friend that I have uh, influence and uh, opportunity to, to, uh, to help mentor is a strong Christian. And so he went to that other organization and he laid out, without quoting Bible verses, just exactly what I'm laying out for you. He told me about it just two days ago. He said, you know, I told them, uh, the way you build a winning culture is you get guys to buy into the fact that uh, they have to lay down the, their lives for the good of the group, uh, put aside their goals for the team goals. They have to uh, be willing to make everyone else around them successful. Uh, they have to do things that promote the well-being and the advancement of other people's careers. And in doing that, they, they will find that everyone will be raised by that mutuality of effort. And uh, I thought to myself as he was sharing that, man, that's exactly what competition looks like in the Christian community. We compete by meeting the needs uh, of others. We compete not to crush others, but to build others up. Uh, we sacrifice ourselves and give everything we have for the good of the group or the good of the team. Well, uh, I'm grateful to God that he's given me a fresh opportunity this year, 2019, to reinvest myself in a community of men and women who need to hear the gospel. Uh, and I pray that I'll be successful in that and be effective in being an infiltrator, as I've talked with you about in the last two podcasts. But I'm also grateful that God has given me uh, some insight into how to help people that are in highly competitive environments to understand the true nature of competition. So whether you work with athletes, whether you work with business leaders, whether you work with people in education fields, wherever you're working with people who are striving to get ahead, uh, trying to accomplish, trying to achieve, you'll find people with a competitive drive. And helping them understand the true nature of Christian competition, which is maximizing our talents, abilities, and opportunities Focusing on what we can control, which is the full implementation of those things, not looking only at the bottom line or the scoreboard. Focusing all of our attention on uh, bringing our preparation, effort, and attitude to the point where we please God and God alone. And then finally, sacrificing ourselves for the good of others, building a competitive environment that's not competing against our teammates, but is instead competing for them, sacrificing ourselves that they might be successful, believing that the spiritual principle is when we do that, God will raise us up to greatness. Well, I hope this podcast helps you and encourages you. Uh, it's a great opportunity we have in 2019, so lead on.